You're thinking about Christmas, aren't you? You are. I know you. That's so you to be thinking about Christmas the first week of November. It's a little early, but I know you're thinking about candy canes and hot chocolate and uh, what else? Uh, Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? Yep, on an open fire, you're thinking about a good, nice, warm plate of latkes. (laughs) I don't know. I ran out of Christmas things, so I had to bring in my own Hanukkah stuff, which I've been doing uh, my entire life around the Christmas holiday. Um, Look, it's too early to start thinking about Christmas. That's weird. But it's not too early to start thinking about Christmas presents. And have I got an idea for a present for you? Well, for you to give to somebody else. Here it is. My book. Yeah, I'm promoting my book on my podcast. Where else would I do it? My book, Malro and the Midnight Organ Fight, is out in paperback. It is soft cover, which means it can fit into a stocking, which I think is true depending on the size of the stocking, I guess. I don't really know. All I know is it's a great Christmas present for your dark, gothy teenager. Yeah, it's a young adult book about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders one particularly bloody summer in San Francisco. In the book, there's a Russian swinging a cleaver. There's a ninja in a Tom Ford suit. There's organ removal. There's heavy metal. You know, holiday stuff. And don't you want your young teenager to be reading about murder on Christmas? (laughs) I think that might provide a nice balance to the holiday events uh, in your house. Where might you buy such a book? You're wondering? Well, I'm glad you asked. How about your local indie bookstore? I know you want to go on Amazon, hit that button, and have it sent wherever it gets sent But uh, what you're really doing is sending Jeff Bezos into space. Let's not do that. Support your local indie bookstore. Go to them, and they will happily order Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight for you. Trust me, your teenager will love it. And you know what? You'll love it too. My goal is for it to be like Harry Potter, where, you know, adults can read it and teenagers can read it too. Oh, and like Harry Potter... I want to sell 400 billion copies. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Rumors of the heavenly seeds Sprawling forth amidst the seas In the bloom of her virginity Rose beyond beliefs Altar lays bare blood-stained shrines Once glistening groves full of disquiet We forged the frontier, spring thawed our sides Man, we bought the loved psyche Black death at our heels, we slept for days In love, the distance, an endless way Towing behind our weathered braid Rudder and sail bend sight And laminations, those tears, those tears A storm-clear psyche, all fears, what fears Silence in the deep sleep of chastity We're in the doldrum psyche Sailing, sailing under a bright star Who are we? That is the music of my guest today on the program, Reb Fountain. Let me tell you a little bit about Reb Fountain. Well, putting it simply, the California-born but New Zealand-raised Reb Fountain is one of the most beguiling, affecting, and captivating musicians out there. And people are catching on. She's won the esteemed Tate Music Prize. She was shortlisted for the Silver Scroll Award for her track, Don't You Know Who I Am. And she was nominated for five New Zealand Music Awards, including Album of the Year 
and Best Solo Artist. She's played sold-out shows across New Zealand, and she opened for Crowded House on their To the Island tour, and she played a spellbinding set at the Splore Music Festival. And I think spellbinding is a great way to describe Reb Fountain's music. Or, at the very least, I think it's a good place to start, because one word does not do the trick. Her songs are dark blasts of gothy noir infused with punk, folk, and indie rock. And her new album, Iris, is an instant classic. It's lush, jagged, and cinematic. It's stirring, and altogether powerful work. So what's Reb Fountain all about? Let's find out. Here's me and Reb Fountain having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I never really considered myself a musician, probably more likely a songwriter. Um, I was not very good at learning. <laughs> I always put, beat myself up and so I, I felt really bad. And um, so I kind of just taught myself some things and then didn't progress a lot. And over the years, you know, playing with bands and stuff, I've, I've become better and more adept at guitar and piano, but really my voice is my primary instrument. So I can play and I know basic theory, but I've never felt very accomplished. And I still today have to remind myself to um, to be kind and that actually, um, you know, I, I, I do play an instrument. <laughs> I do play instruments, just not as well as I'd like. Yeah. Yeah. And that kindness you're talking about, someone pointed out to me the other day, they said, you're terrible at taking compliments. Like someone will say something nice to me. And then I'll, I'll take the compliment and deconstruct it. I'll say, well, you know, I do what I can for an idiot or, so, or something like, that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's not a good example. But when you say being kind, do you mean being kind to yourself and saying like, hey, I'm all right. Like I, I do things okay. Yeah, very much so. I mean, for me, it's like a daily practice of having, of being self-loving, you know, that that's helped me survive or learning how to do that because often you're not and the things that we say to ourselves are so awful you know we're very abusive to ourselves yeah Um, and you know in many ways you might have gone through trauma in your childhood or trauma in your life but we're the ones who like beat ourselves up every day um with negative comments um and those that has a real impact and for me I think I physically manifested that kind of negativity quite young so I felt the impact and how you can get sick from from hurting yourself like that and you know physically and and emotionally as well feel unwell so uh yeah I I have to practice every day (laughs) have you noticed a change since you've been mindful of being kinder to yourself have you noticed positive changes oh definitely I mean I, I feel like I'm getting in many ways healthier and healthier as I get older because of because of that kind of consciousness around it um and I listen a lot more to my body you know I was always pushing and driving and not really listening and you know having this kind of sense that you're Wonder Woman when really you're not we're human we have limitations and everything kind of realizing that everything has an impact upon you so you you, your bucket is going to overflow if you add too many things in and just trying to listen a lot more be aware of when to slow down before you get sick you know before yeah. something hurt yourself and speaking of which <laughs> like second day of lockdown just like 10 days ago I a speaker fell on my foot and I've fractured my toe so I'm hobbling around in this lovely moon oh, no. um so you know, hence, you know needing to slow down <laughs> yeah that's one of that's one of the hazards of the job that a speaker can fall on your foot yeah, I was really, you know, I was kind of like getting into the mode of sitting at my recording space at home. I'm like, okay, we're in lockdown. I'm going to do some stuff. And um, lo and behold, I crushed my foot. So, you know, um, wear shoes. <laughs> yeah, wear shoes around speakers that could fall. 
Um, and you must have known it was trouble as soon as it hit your foot. Oh, it was so painful. It was ridiculous and it, it didn't subside. So yeah, I ended up having to go to emergency. And of course, you know, we haven't, we wear masks everywhere. No one's really out and about. There's heaps of, yeah, so it was quite a big deal. But um, I'm rolling with it now. I've, I've worked up like a ride, a, a little folding bike with my dog beside me and we can still go on, on bike walks. So that's <laughs> good. Good. How long will you be in this, in this uh, predicament? the foot predicament yeah sometime yeah i am a little concerned because we've got shows nearing the end of the year um well coming up in october really um so yeah i may be shoeless on stage but hey walking will be great properly walking will be a, a positive thing <laughs> something to look forward to now i don't typically delve into the past but um but you're an interesting case in the sense that you i believe are from where i'm from but somehow you ended up um, where you are. So can you just talk a little bit about the trajectory, the geographical trajectory of your life? Because it's very interesting to me. Um, yeah, I was born in Palo Alto um, at Stanford Medical Center, actually. And, um, uh, but I didn't really stay there for very long. My parents went to Ontario and Canada, and then we went to Vancouver. I have lots of family in Vancouver as well as in California. So all West Coast kind of close family. Um, and then um, my parents immigrated to New Zealand. Um, it was so far away as well at the time. We took a boat um, called the Oriana, which was, you know, pre-Princess Cruises, um, quite a sort of just a stock standard uh, boat. A tiny little cabin I remember that you just you just slept in you could never stay down there because it was so tiny um but um yeah we traversed across, across the oceans to to New Zealand and I we ended up in in Littleton and, and Christchurch and I guess the reason why we'd gone was that my dad was getting a job at the university um in Canterbury but you know why do you travel so far away <laughs> I'd say it had a lot to do more with running away from family or things because it's it was it was quite a weird um weird time you know in many ways we could fit in quite well to this very kind of Pakeha white traditional old school kind of community but we were so different you know um coming from California my parents were pretty liberal hippie-ish and um and so there was some, it was quite a challenge, I think, for my family. Um, but yeah, we grew up, uh, I grew up here and, or oh, in Christchurch. And um, uh, it was, it was interesting. I guess music was always the way that we connected with uh, other people. We sort of got together with other migrant families and had song circles or we'd sit around and my dad made up a songbook and, and I'd kind of come from a long line of migrants in North America anyway who who use music to connect with others you know you turn up and everyone's playing an instrument um so in many ways I was separated from that that kind of um um musicality that we had in North America but we brought it with us to New Zealand so for me it was always a way of making sense of 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 our isolation, making sense of our community, making sense of how I felt. And so I, I was really drawn to music in that way because of that migration, I suppose. It sounds like you were like, what, five or six when you landed in New Zealand? Yeah, I think I think I turned six went just before we got on the boat. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a story. I, Cause I, in my brain, I was thinking, oh, perhaps her parents had New Zealand roots and they were just returning to them. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everyone else is back in North America now. My dad's just about to go back. Um, yeah, so no, we didn't. And I think we weren't prepared at all for the culture shock. I mean, no one ever is as a migrant. Um, and, and again, like I say, we were very fortunate in the respect that we physically fit in on some level but culturally it was it was a strange time we've got these two track tapes that we used to make and send back overseas to families you know my parents talking about the kids and me and my brother when we were little and um you know there's uh, a lot of talk from my mom about because they were in the church at, at 
Christians at the time and going to church and how she's like, you know, women here are still subservient to their husbands. Like it's very, un, it's very weird, you know. So coming at liberal kind of Pacific um, space into this was, was very, it was very backward. <laughs> did you sort of think of yourself growing up as a secret Californian or did you start to self-identify as being, as being a New Zealander? Well, there were many things that made me feel like I was an outsider kind of wherever I was, you know, and sometimes included, but like my mom, you know, there's photographs of her skiing in cut off jean shorts and a bikini top. Now that was to full California girl in New Zealand. People didn't do that here. You didn't show your skin <laughs> like that. So I kind of grew up with that tension and, and I always, I suppose, felt it in myself too. Um, certainly um climate wise especially as I get older I'm like I'm definitely a California girl um but um yeah I mean it was it was always something that was quite special and in lots of respects um but again it it felt like I was just always missing somebody that's what it feels when you are not in the place of your birth you know you miss you're missing people and places yeah that's that's very well put and and yet Yet you remain. You never, you never left. You, you stayed. Oh well, I, I, I did. I went to the UK and then came and lived in the States for a while. When I was younger, I went to see, lived in Seattle for a, a while. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I sort of came back here and, um, and then quite quickly ended up getting pregnant and having two children and then being a single parent. And it's pretty hard to, it's hard, although I had dreams, it's hard to do anything when you're parenting. Yeah. So kind of ended up here again. And I'm so grateful for that, like uh, that my kids have grown up here and it's such a beautiful place. And, and I, you know, I'd often think about if I was in my situation here in the US, how I would be destitute, you know, we have a social welfare system here that supports single parents, you know, um so I was able to live and in, in w with my children and, and in many ways thrive in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if I was in North America so yeah I was I was grateful grateful for that it is a weird thing to be an expat though um looking at your country and feeling uh often sort of shame <laughs> um yeah. and fear and anxiety for it and like um, my friend Amanda Palmer, she is here at the moment. She's been in New Zealand for the past year from the Dresden Dolls. And um, Amanda has been going through that same process, but all kind of compacted into the last year. And, you know, it, it's quite a strange thing to be away um, witnessing from a different perspective what's going on in your homeland, you know, because I do very much feel like that. North America is my home as is Aotearoa as well so yeah it's weird yeah there there have been some really um hard moments to walk off in the last couple of years um you know because in some ways it feels like the sort of um I don't know that that sort of um you know Salem witch trial mentality of pointing fingers at people and being divisive. It seems so uniquely American, that sort of puritanical judgmental kind of thing. And we're seeing that now with these divisions of people who you know, don't believe in wearing masks and don't believe in vaccines and don't believe in whatever. Um, and it's become a very angry country. And I, maybe it always was, but um, it, feels, it feels, I mean, very divided and very, in some ways, kind of rocky and scary. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to have a conversation about this in the Bay Area, um, but I imagine you go a little further north or you go, you know, it's not as easy and it, 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 is, it is shameful. So what Amanda's feeling and what you're observing is, is very real and, and the specter of it turning again um, is, is also very real. So it's a, it's a very tense time over here. Yeah, it's been interesting. We, I've been reflecting a lot upon that sort of um, lack of empathy or um, ability to consider others. Because, you know, as we are sort of um, ramping up our vaccination program here, 
um, there is that same rhetoric and that's not to the same degree like you say some of that is is very um, essentially American you know this um, this kind of imperialist imperative that's you know I have the right I have the divine right to behave or do as I wish you know um, but I think that is underpinning underpinning a lot of rhetoric here also um, and it's it, it's very um, it's very in many ways very racist <laughs> it comes from this white this place of white privilege you know um, and um, to try and unpack and understand the resistance around the vaccine or not necessarily just anti-vax but kind of like more resistance and skepticism around it I really think you have to think about uh, colonialism and and um, uh, capitalism and patriarchy and how those things have impacted upon indigenous cultures and minority groups and you know to to unpack it a little bit more and make sense of it and maybe be more compassionate but also feel okay with being more stern like I guess here I'm I'm like, man, we all need to get vaccinated. We need to do it for one another. We need to do it for the, our communities and our vulnerable. But I don't know if I always felt that way. Um, and the, and the, the great, the wonderful opportunity about COVID is that it's brought to light these inequities and maybe we can do something about it. Um, but there are a lot of people resistant to doing, to losing their privileges, you know? Yeah, and in America, we've done this really, this is the uniquely American thing where, people have turned it into an attack on liberty, <laughs> which is just so absurd. Um, and that's, the rhetoric is going that direction, that it's somehow couched in patriotism. Um, and that that kind of attitude feels uniquely American, because there's protests all over the world, but this particular one feels endemic to, to the U.S. Yeah, well, I mean, that sort of those systems of systematic racism and, and structural racism are really embedded in the core and foundation of, of the Americas, you know? Um, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, yeah. It's a problem that are on our currency are pictures of dead white men who own slaves. I mean, that does say a lot. Yeah, it's highly unfortunate. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's good to, bring these things to light it's uncomfortable but it's important and I guess in many ways in my music I try and uh, get as many glimpses or pictures of things as I can um, because we're all trying to grapple with and make sense of our world you know we're all human like we're really having the same experience and I think kind of being able to create or universal stories and that's not to say that there are many different stories within that um, different voices um, uh, and it's important to shed light on those many many voices or or and listen as well you know um, I think I think music is a, is a powerful tool for that. Growing up in the Bay Area I got into all of these New Zealand bands when I was 15 16 you know I started listening to the Chills and the Verlaines and the Clean and sneaky feelings, and I developed, and then later on, Garage Land, and I and I just sort of developed this kind of um, trust with the Flying Nun label. Where if I saw an album came out on Flying Nun, remember the days where you actually trusted a label because it put an album yeah. out, right? It's like four AD, I'll buy it. Um, yeah, and they were one of those labels that literally never let me down, um, and so I really had a tremendous fondness for the label, and I had a fondness for the bands and I developed this kind of romantic idea that everybody was friends and they all knew each other and there was like this news and did you were you as bewitched by that that sort of group of bands or what were you what were you listening to as you as you got older yeah absolutely like um flying nun was a, a very cool indie label it was the label you know for me growing up um, it was a very, very male-dominated label at the That's time. True. Yeah, you're right. Felt very cool. Like you, it was music that you listened to, but I couldn't ever imagine being a part of it. <laughs> you know, um, uh, all that stuff that came out in the '80s, really. Um, 
was um, it was hugely influential. But again, it's sort of in many ways it felt quite separate from me. Like, and I go see those bands to play. Like, you know, I think I was sixteen when I went to my first Straitjacket Fitz concert, um, and yeah, it was mind blowing. They were they were godlike. I, just, I mean, I don't, and it's not really a joke. It really was. We didn't have a lot of music coming to New Zealand, you know, it's a lot of internationals. Um, and so, yeah, for us, they were, they were kind of iconic and um, in the same way, I think. Um, and then I guess over the years, that's, that's changed as the music industry's changed. But uh, yes, it was quite a shock <laughs> to think that they would be interested in me and my music um i it's um it's different than those kind of male rock bands you know that um punk rock bands that we listened to growing up um but i've been really well supported and it is very much a family um kind of kind of vibe Lord, my body is aching drank wine like it was endless summer nights spent with you by my side I could pretend you'd always be my lover when you said I was your Venus you like a look for the taking close enough to see me in your eyes love was only ever
in terms of you with your musical career, when did it start to really take shape? Like, when did you start to develop um, a sound and a feel for what you wanted to do? And, you know, were, like, were you in bands prior to doing your own thing? Like, what was your, what was your history? Yeah, like, I've been doing music forever, really. And I was, you know, I grew up with music with my family and then I would play at coffee shops and when I was younger and then I was in my first band when I was 16 and we you know would play a lot and then I went overseas and went to jazz school for a bit and you know writing my own stuff and then when I came back to New Zealand I sort of started having a bit more confidence for for playing in bands again um and then I had got pregnant so I was kind of like doing quite well at the time you know like pushing my career I suppose but I was still young and um it really was kind of coming back to it uh as my children got a little bit older that I, I started engaging but I, I didn't to be honest I didn't really know what I wanted I just I kind of had these rock and roll dreams like I think a lot of us did you know growing up uh this the sense that you make a record and you you become something it was still very much the time of record labels having so much dominance there was a lot of competition there wasn't a lot of female artists out there um and I was interacting with it from that kind of level from the you know the sort of dream to get signed kind of level um and that was you know initially what got me into making a record um yes I was still writing my songs but I hadn't quite developed yet I, I I think um and then as I sort of gained more of a community made another record um I I started thinking more about the song craft I guess in a new way um not just an, as an expression but more as a craft um but then uh then just like the shit hit the fan and you know I'd spent all this money money I didn't have you know touring and and recording and I was putting so much out and I wasn't getting stuff back and also I felt incredibly despondent because this kind of rock and roll dream didn't come to fruition you know and I I pinned so much upon that and it wasn't really about that it was just about wanting to be accepted you know and feeling rejected inside. And then that tied into so many other things that were going on with me personally. And so I, I, I stopped for a while and actually I needed to, cause my kids were at an age where it just was impossible. You know, I'd spend more money going on a, out to play a gig on a babysitter than I would making money at the gig. Mm. And so, and I, because I was a single parent as well, just felt too hard. And, and it wasn't really until, uh, years later um that i i joined a band called the eastern and we would we tour a lot and i built my confidence back up again i suppose and was reminded of why i play music why i'd been doing it from the start because you know music has meaning and it builds connection and community and those are all things that actually i value and and just needed to be reminded of and um, and I was really scared, but I was doing it anyway. <laughs> and so that enabled me to start, you know, I would open the shows and, and I'd sing in the band and kind of just start re-engaging. And from there, um, a friend said, look, I'd really like to record these new songs, which were very much folk, kind of folk country songs, because um, that's what I, the band I was in and playing on the road, that's what I'd grown up with. And and so we did, we recorded a, this, this um, record called Hopeful and Hopeless. And, um, and then a month later, my friend who was in my band and had been for years, he suicided. And I just kind of hit rock bottom again, like feeling like I couldn't do it. And, you know, just it, it felt so hard. And I guess what really turned things around for me was finding getting the brave, the confidence, the courage to uh, release and tour these two records, Hopeful and Hopeless and Little Arrows that we'd made um, and, and share them. And at the time I was sharing them for my friend, you know, and like his music, but really it was my own stuff. And through that journey, I guess I, 
I realized that I didn't, I could be free of all the stuff from the past that I was doing music because I loved it. And it just changed, changed the energy for me so much. And, um, and from that time, um, I just had a sort of burgeoning commitment to myself in a new way. And, you know, that intersects with lots of other stuff that was going on in my life and my kids were getting older and, um, yeah, I guess, um, I can't remember what the question was that you asked, but, but it, it, that journey meant that I was able to approach music in a way where everything was a bonus, you know, that it felt really positive. It was still hard and I'm, I get pretty nervous when I go on stage and it's my favorite thing to do, but I always feel nervous, you know, and, and you're still intersecting with all that stuff about acceptance or whether people are going to listen to your music and all that. But, but I was coming from it and I am coming from it in a very different place. And so I feel very liberated from the ties that bound me to, to old insecurities or self-doubts in the past. And, uh, and I'm just able to enjoy playing, you know, and creating in a different way, um, which has meant that the music that I make is different and uh, it's evolved and my relationships have evolved and the things that I do, you know, uh, what what you think matters <laughs> makes the difference in your life, you know? Yeah, and it sounds like that it fed back into the creative process, right? Like it fed back into the way you write and the way that you, the way that you create now. Yeah, I just had more confidence in my songwriting or my, not even that, because I, in a way I don't kind of feel like it's always me writing. It's more just being open to whatever comes and that then you are more of a vehicle or a vessel for that creativity to come through but when you've got all these blocks in the way it's hard to listen you know so like I right. said this conversation it's about listening and being open to the possibilities and um and then yes having like my work with Dave Khan who's my friend and he's in my band and producer co-produced the album with Simon Gooding um you know this sort of relationship where you can feel free to connect and share and that's that's helped me learn so much helped me to create space in my music and the sound of it and and the writing and um yeah it's developed over time I still you know I still feel very cross genre and and uh, because I just feel open and don't want to be limited um in any in any way you know it sounds also like you removed the ego from the process from the performance from um you know from from the music being out there and being attached to acceptance and you went well you got it's like you loosened up right and you kind of just went whatever whatever happens happens now because everything's a bonus yeah I think I think so I mean you know we're, we're I'm still human and still have feelings and doubts and everything but you know the reasons why I felt the way I did when I was younger were very much tied up to the fact that I was you know, unhappy and working through shit, you know, and sometimes it takes a while to, to get to a point where you're, you're free of, of the old, you know, and I would encourage anyone that's in the middle of their own muck and mire uh, to keep going because um, it changes, you know, that the, the self-work is worth it. It's also interesting in the sense that you can get on stage and feel very supported and very warm in terms of the response that you're getting. And then you could play two nights later for a totally different crowd and not get that warmth, not feel that feeling. And so that's why it's really important to remove the ego and just sort of, right? And be in that moment because you can't say, I'm in on Wednesday and out on Thursday, you'll drive yourself crazy. Yeah, I think also, um it's important to remember that you're doing a job when you perform, like the audience have done their bit already. They've got a babysitter or paid to come out, made this huge effort, come through the rain, come to your show. And that it's not really okay. I don't feel like it's okay for me to have expectations of them. You know, they've already done their part. So for me, um, I guess if there's pressure, the pressure is on me to connect with myself enough that I can be present with them in that moment and, and perform and share my music to the best of my ability. So, I mean, of course it makes a difference if people talk through your show or right. you know, are 
or sitting or you know all that stuff but I can't I don't want to rely on their response to fuel me to do a good job like my job as a musician is to go out there and do it well irrespective um and um that's very empowering you know and also I think it it helps you have agency um and gives the audience it takes the pressure off the audience because then they're able to engage with you fully <laughs> you know they're free to really choose how they react um and absorb what you do and it's great i love it do you allow yourself the because like you said you are a human being and maybe maybe you have an off night maybe you didn't feel great um do you walk away from a performance like that and go let yourself off the hook and just go mm -hmm. look that was an off night well you know i tried <laughs> every show is different and some shows are harder than others um for me but i would hope that generally that's not noticeable for an audience you know so yeah there are times when i go oh this was really challenging or man i was so nervous that i felt like i was forgetting work i was going to forget my words or right. i um um it didn't feel as fluid or as connected um and it's great to debrief about that stuff but I'm not going to fall into the pit of despair. Uh, You've got to pick yourself up because um, it's not that I want to ignore how I feel. And I definitely don't do that. I'll go on stage and say, wow, I feel nervous to myself, you know, and but as long as I own it and I'm honest with where I'm at, then I can play with that and um, be in that space. And it's okay. Um, yeah. I try not to do the beating myself up thing afterwards. Yeah, it's not constructive. And I think that's sometimes with you, you know, if you get a lot of critical acclaim and notice at 19, um, that's harder, I think, to, because it seems to me like, like the maturity um, factor um, definitely weighs in where it's sort of like, you let yourself off the hook, you just go, all right, well, I, I gave that a shot. And I'm not going to beat myself up about it and ruin my night and ruin tomorrow night's performance about it, because let's just move on. It's hard. I mean, you know, we're inherently self-critical as creatives and yeah, you know, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's hard, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you got to keep doing the work. I also think it's fair to walk away and go, I crushed it. I did a really good job. <laughs> like I, that went really well. Right. That's healthy. I, and I, you know, the more that you play, the more that, if this is your job um you grow into that knowing that you want to crush it every night um uh so you'll be in different spaces and and different heads yeah different head spaces around that night you know or within that night but um you can always do a good job in many ways you know uh, if you've rehearsed, if you are committed to yourself, if you're connected with the other musicians, if you're present, I don't know, I feel like that sets you up to win most times, you know. You mentioned Amanda, do you have friendships in the industry that are quite important for you in terms of a continuous dialogue where you check in and talk about, talk about, you know, your job, talk about what's going on and commiserate as a as a creative person yeah i mean i just had a zoom conference or you know get together um a few days ago with some wahini some women in the industry who are um musicians and songwriters um and yeah we were talking about that very thing you know um what is What's the experience of being in lockdown? How does it affect their work? How are they feeling about having to reschedule stuff? You know, how are they coping with the uncertainty? What does it mean? You know, all of that stuff. I think it's really important to reach out. Everyone's having their own kind of individual experiences of it and everyone deals with it in different ways. But like Amanda and I just did this pro project um, 
a couple of days before we ended up having to go to lockdown and we were both saying you know how grateful we are to have had that moment and that time together because it wouldn't have happened otherwise we wouldn't have been able to participate in this project and um yeah I do um I, and saying that though I <laughs> I'm not the greatest at reaching out and connecting so I have to work I have to work hard at that especially at these times where you, you know you're not leaving the house <laughs> do you tend to go more insular and into yourself yeah I think I always have um you know most of the time that's not a bad thing I, I don't have a lot of close friendships but the ones that I have are really you know valuable and lifelong so um uh yeah I just have to keep fostering that and practicing yeah how did you and Amanda become friends how did you guys connect we we met she had sort of ended up in Hawke's Bay which is about five hours drive from where I live and I was down there doing a couple of shows and the guy that was putting on the shows, Jamie McPhail, he, he said, oh, you've got to meet Amanda um, and we'll meet her for lunch. And I didn't know who she was. Like I didn't, I hadn't put two to two and two together uh, till we got there. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was quite a big, deal for me um but it turns out that we're related we're both mckinnons uh from way back and so we have this uh, scottish heritage in common um and uh, she does very much feel like kin in many ways we get on super well and um yeah it's it's really nice it's it's a great friendship it's cool are you in touch with your Scottish heritage? Have you looked into that? Because I'm looking into that kind of stuff right now because it's a part of my family that's kind of a mystery and I'm trying to trace it. But are you, have you sort of explored your, your, um, you know, your, your relatives and your... No, not enough, no. Um, uh, it's something that I've been talking about with my brother actually um, uh, getting more involved in. Um, yeah, because I, I don't, on the other side is U Ukrainian migrants. Um, and um, and I don't, I'm quite disconnected from that. I think more so because we've grown up so far away from family, but it's definitely something that I'd like to do, yeah. When you played with Crowded House, what was that like? That must've been a fairly large crowd. Was that sort of nerve wracking or was that, or was that okay? Um, oh, it was fantastic. Oh, they were the best shows. Uh, there's, <laughs> you know, there's such a great family environment. I'd worked with Neil a couple of years earlier on his Out of Silence record. So I got to know him and the family a lot more. Our Warrior played on my last record. Um, we toured together. So um, yeah, they've, they, we all were this great big family. Um, and the show was, of course, the production was amazing, you know, uh, so you're never straining to hear yourself or, you know, that made such a difference. And then the shows were fantastic. I guess it was a little, a little surprised because I I don't didn't have a problem with the large stadiums um you know they're much bigger audiences than I played to before um and playing for nine or ten thousand people didn't sway me as much as I thought it might um I just did the same work that I do anywhere else but I really enjoyed them I enjoyed those big bigger spaces and um connecting with new crowds and, and fans and um yeah it was it was amazing like a lifetime what a dream an absolute dream <laughs> you know and such a huge band for us here in New Zealand so yeah I felt incredibly fortunate still do I had Elroy on the show a few weeks ago lovely guy oh awesome yeah yeah really just uh, he's such a nice guy and he's one thing that really struck me about him and the Finns is that he is incredibly friendly, but he's also such a focused artist. You can really tell that there's every note, there's such seriousness to the craft. And I really admire that in, in his work and his brother's work and his dad's work. I mean, um, yeah, and I love his album. I think his album's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, Al is an amazing musician. I love his album too. And, um, and man, he's, he's an exceptional drummer. I've really enjoyed watching him 
from side of stage at Crowded House and listening because man, he just held that down so so incredibly. And he's yeah, he's you know he's a sensitive, creative male who's grown up with music in his life, and um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is, and it's a rare thing that their the way their family works is just so um, inspiring, and it feels like such a peaceable kingdom that they have going there. It feels so, it's, it's a nice story. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, I felt really honored to be, to share in that um, and for my band to share in that. And um, yeah, I hope we get to do more shows in the future together. Yeah. My sense about you is that you are creatively more alive than you've ever been. It seems to me that you, um, like, like, I know the sky is the limit is it is such a cliche, but it really does feel um, that you're at the top in top form and that you are receptive to anything now. And it feels like you are, you know, in terms of your own creative focus, um, you know, better than ever. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, I want to do a good job and I want to do my best with my craft and, um, uh, you know, keep learning and growing and, and writing and being open to what is there or what's not there. Um, so, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm just doing, I'm just doing it. Um, and in the work, you know, it, it, pays off to to work hard at what you do and um in many ways for me COVID has been a real opportunity to to write and record and connect with particularly with my audience in New Zealand like for the last record I mean it was full pandemic and I, I didn't get any traction overseas I mean we sold some records but in terms of the album it was really very much New Zealand focused and that ended up being okay you know you kind of have dreams of like getting a, a an interview with Mojo or something in the Rolling Stone but sure but to connect more fully with the audience here has been amazing and um, like I said I guess everything is a bonus and I'm grateful for this conversation I'm grateful for the fact that one or 500 or 10,000 people listen and or come to a show and um yeah it's just good good work <laughs> yeah and are you willing to sort of chase down any idea that you have like you're willing to follow it and maybe it doesn't pay off but at least you're willing to experiment do you feel like an experimental artist now more than than you've been oh yeah very much so um i i'm pushing all the time you know the the opportunities and the work that's been created has become been from me pushing it and me and Dave a lot together as well just constantly thinking and moving forward and and on a sort of business level and and on a music level as well and um I get stuck like everybody else with writing and you know feeling like you don't have anything to say or just um but I I feel more confident now and moving through that and just you know practicing your instrument while you're those you're stuck or you know and waiting till something comes or emerges or there's space for it or or creating space for it so yeah very much so I'm open to I'm open to anything pretty much <laughs> and you have a remarkable discipline Reb you really do I mean it's very clear that you're a very disciplined artist <laughs> it's so funny that you say that because I think I'm the least disciplined and <laughs> my brother is a jazz drummer and um uh, and he's just always practiced so much, you know, you have to, to do that work. And, and I was never very good at it, but I think, I think my work on myself has really helped my, my um, discipline with my music, you know, and that the two combined um, work in tandem for me anyway. And that if I can keep that commitment up to myself, then it's the commitment to music. So it's good. Yeah, and I, and I think that even if you're not in the process of writing lyrics or thinking about songs, that you're but but you're thinking about thinking about it. I think that counts too. I think that's all part of it. Yeah, everything that you do as you work, and I mean, right. 
things that I admire and is also terrifying about what Amanda does is, you know, 24 seven is her work pretty much, you know, um, that's a hard way to live. And I, I don't live that way, but that approach of um, accepting whatever comes into your space and your environment as you move through the day as being in, can informing your work, you know, and I guess, the songs on the album Iris are very much about that, that thematically there's the sense that all the things that you do in your life, the sum of those parts um, creates a whole and is informed by those parts, but you don't necessarily see that, that at the end production, you know, you see the shiny thing, um, but, um, but there's a lot <laughs> that yeah. goes in that, that end work. Um, and, I I love that. I embrace that. Yeah, the shiny thing was built brick by brick. I mean, it was it's put together with that's why when when people say, Oh, I saw the new movie by so and so, stupid. And I kind of go, that that represents three years of, of a lot of people uh working really hard. Maybe watch it again. <laughs> or just maybe, maybe refine the comment of it's stupid and figure out what you're not responding to because it really is an intricate layering of, of different people doing different kinds of work um, that's complex. So to just sort of sweep something aside, you know, that took years to make feels, it just doesn't feel right to do. Well, I think as an, as an artist as well, I feel a responsibility to those other people in my ecosystem, you know, um, and that really became apparent last year this this sense of our community not just being myself and my band um but being the venues and the the tech musicians and um uh the promoters as well as the audience that we're all in this together and when i can commit to myself and create work for myself i'm also creating work for a whole community you know as well as entertainment for people and that um you know that's one of the great things of being liberated beyond your fears and doubts about stuff is that you can consider other people in a new way and when I was writing Iris you know the reason to record it was uh very much <laughs> um uh, I was pushed along by the sense of wanting to care for my band, to create work for them, to create work for us in the future and to create work for the venues and the places that we go to and those people on the team, you know, like we're in it together and I'm one piece of that. So I got to play my part, you know, um, it's, it's an incredible ecosystem, incredible landscape to be a part of, but um, every part of it needs to be valued, you know. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I love your music. I love what you do. I think you're marvelous. Um, and I, I think of you as a Californian. We've just loaned you to New Zealand for a while. But... <laughs> well, I've got great, great hopes of, of coming back. I mean, obviously, I really miss my family. Um, we had planned to come over and do some shows um, last year. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, maybe in 2022, we will make it over later in the year. I, I just, I really don't know. But in the meantime, you know, I'll just keep doing my best to share what we've got here and, and connecting with people and, you know, love to be, love to be embraced as a California girl. <laughs> honorary California girl, Reb Fountain. Isn't she lovely? Just awesome. Awesome to talk to her. Her new album, Iris, is incredible. It's like a real experience. You got to get it. Rebfountain.co.nz is where you need to go to uh, buy it and find out what's happening in Reb's life. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com That'll cover what's happening with the radio station. And uh, you can also 
Follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. By the way, feel free to do all three. I will not think it's weird if I hear from you on all three mediums. Throw a fourth in and then I'm starting to get suspicious. Stereo Embers the Podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, rate, and review, and tell another friend while you're at it, and uh, and then have them tell their friends, and very soon the takeover will be in full effect. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. We truly appreciate it. Let's close things off with a longer listen to Psyche by Reb Fountain from her fantastic new album, Iris. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Rumors of the heavenly seeds sprawling forth amidst the seas in the bloom of her virginity rose beyond beliefs. Altar lays bare blood-stained shrines Once glistening groves full of disquiet We forged the frontier spring thawed our sides Man, we bought the loved psyche Black death at our heels we slept for days In love the distance and endless way Towing behind our weathered braid Rudder and sail bend psyche On the laminations, those tears, those tears A storm clears psyche, your fears, what fears Silence in the deep sleep of chastity We're in the doldrum psyche Sailing, sailing under a bright star Who are we? Outcome was unordained The voices you hear are your handmaids Performing unseen fields Reckless I'm stealing the night can spy Resume wandering the idle oceans to inspire A rare reflection, there are no weddings We quit the sea Observed how you trace the earth, blessed, exhausted by toil, assaged of rest. Where does my lord dwell? Guess, shipwreck, we attest to your journey. Say.